The message worth sending should be clearly sent. The message worth sending should be clearly sent. Let me give you a very simple example of that. Um, a coach on the sidelines in a football game and his quarterback out there on the field, those plays as they're being relayed uh, out there to that quarterback. Some of you, I'm sure, most of us have seen a, a football game or two, and you can see there on the sidelines, there's the coach. He's got this big, massive headset there, and he's barking in the plays. He's got all this spreadsheet out in front of him and all that. And, and some of you may know that the quarterback actually has a headset as well, at least in NFL games. They're inside his helmet, okay? Now, likely in the big game, and you may have heard there is one today, likely in, in the big game that's being played later on today, they're not going to have any technical snafus as they've had in seasons past because of some brand new technologies that have brought to bear just actually in the last year. However, strange things has, have happened, and I read about this just this past week, where a quarterback is out there on the field trying to hear his coach call in the plays, and he's hearing a pilot flying overhead talking to the tower. Or even worse, I think this was in New York at some point. Uh, no, San Francisco. A, uh, a team was out there, and the quarterback's on the field, and he's trying to hear his coach, and he's hearing the sound checks for a Madonna concert that's taking place later on that evening. Little wonder, then, that visiting teams in particular have to, have, in the years past, have had to do sound checks themselves there in the stadium when they show up, you know, there before the game. Well, again, a message worth sending is worth sending clearly. The gospel is a message worth sending. And therefore, it is a message worth sending clearly. The gospel is a message, well, the message, well worth sending. Therein, worth sending clearly. So it raises a question. Do we know the essentials of this message? Do we know the essentials of this message that we might then be able to convey it? And that's why we're going to look where we're going to look here this morning, Mark chapter 8. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn there now with me. Mark chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 22 and read to the end of the chapter. And if you're trying to find the Gospel of Mark, a quick way is just to find the New Testament. It's the second book in the New Testament. Matthew is the first of the Gospels that we have in terms of the order that we have in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in Mark, Mark 8, starting in verse 22. Hear now the word of God. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, 
you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, even as we have said no few times in this room on such occasions, quoting from your very word, the, gla the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So, whatever we find here that goes against the grain, whatever we find here that defies our assumptions and presuppositions and basic leanings and tendencies, we need to lay down. Uh, we need to bow down before you. And we ask that you'd help us to do that now. Uh, we ask fervently that you would help us to do that now. Uh, we, we come here this morning as, as beggars on the same level, ground before the cross, all in equal need, no matter how far along the path we may be or think ourselves to be. We are but beggars, everyone. Amen. As I said in the beginning of the service, and I was actually just hearkening back to something that we said last week in, in the, uh, the sermon last week, the gospel, that, that word, uh, means literally good news. And it is good news for two reasons. First, because of its substance, because of what it's conveying and who it's about and what he has accomplished. It is also good news because of its potential. It's the power of the gospel to transform any of our lives. So it's good news. And with that in mind, as followers of Jesus, we've been given a task. We've been given assignments, if you will, to be stewards of that news, to be ambassadors of that news, to be uh, agents of that news, to be heralds, to be heralds, faithfully conveying what we've heard, no more and no less. Much akin to town criers in, in years gone by who had this astonishing, significant role in, in the society, in the culture, in the village because theirs was to relay royal proclamations from the throne. They were the mouthpiece. They would go forth out into the streets wearing a, a special uniform, holding the bell, crying, Hear ye, hear ye going forth again uh, as, as an agent of the king. As agents of the king, in fact, they were protected by law for any person to harm their person. 
especially in the face of bad news like the raise of taxes, was ultimately deemed to be a strike against the crown, against the throne, the one who had sent them. So they were protected by law. Again, there's this a significant role to convey, to proclaim what the, what the king wants them to convey and to proclaim. So it stands to reason, of course, that such an individual, such a herald, such a uh, town crier was responsible to know what it was they were to convey, what it consisted of, and to clearly speak it. Well, so too must we. We have a message. We need to know that message well and to convey it clearly. Granted, there's this antinomy. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago? This antinomy, these, this, this apparent... We talked about this actually in the senior high uh, boys class just last hour. This seeming contradiction between these two things. Held in tension. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Neither one eclipsing the other. Both held equally highly, equally true there in the Scripture. So with that in mind pertaining to this, God rules... God rules. He is the one who brings the message of the gospel to bear to any person's heart. All praise go to him. Absolutely. At the same time, we have a role. Not only to believe it, not only to accept it, but as his followers, to convey it, to proclaim it, to speak it. He works through us. He does the work, understand. But he works through us to reach people with this gospel message. We then need to know that gospel message ourselves. Stands to reason, right? So that takes us into the three questions, the three questions before us here this morning. Uh, and the answers, fortunately, that we can find here in this text. Now, full disclosure, just so you know, is a shameful plug. Eh, shameless. Shameless plug for the Christianity Explored series. This is basically what I'm giving you is the outline of that course. It's also basically the themes of Mark's gospel, the three points that you can see there in your outline. And it's really the themes that you see in this text. Three questions. Who is Jesus? Second, why did he come? Third, how should we respond? Those are huge questions. And we need to wrestle with them, every one of us, and to continue wrestling with them. Who is Jesus? That's the first question. Who is Jesus? Let's look at verses 27 through 30. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the question of identity. Jesus's identity. Now, this is the, the great question that Jesus is posing to his disciples. The greatest question that could ever be posed. Who is he? Who is he? Now, at this, this is the climax, really, of Mark's gospel. So much has happened thus far up to this point. is building, building, building. To this moment, he has performed powerful miracles of, of healing, of disease, uh, miracles over nature, of driving out demons. He has... He has taught, in a way, on his own authority like no one else ever has. And not surprisingly, then the, tr the crowds are, he's getting attention. He's becoming something of a celebrity, I guess you could say. There, and with that, there are many, many opinions, so many lofty opinions even of, of who he is. Not all of them right, but high, high. 
nonetheless. But so Jesus asked this question, but he wants to get personal. He's not satisfied with just wanting to do some, you know, poll data. He wants to know, who do you, my disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, as the spokesman for the disciples, responds. And he says, you are the Christ, meaning you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the long-awaited, much-anticipated deliverer and rescuer of God's people, of us. Now, notice Jesus' response. He, this is so important. Jesus doesn't refute what Peter says. Do you notice that? He's agreeing with the words that Peter has spoken, but not the meaning behind them. And that becomes increasingly clear as you keep reading through the text because we begin to understand what Peter meant when he said that. But the, the title, the Christ, the Anointed One, absolutely, absolutely, which shows us, it's important to recognize this, sometimes coming to faith is a process. Sometimes coming to, 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 to understand, to believe, and embrace it is a process that unfolds over time. And what Jesus is doing here is he is, he is restoring, he is he is. Um, giving spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. He's helping the disciples see gradually, just as he had already done. Remember, this is why I read the passage, that, the event that takes place just before this. The healing, that two-stage miracle of the healing of the sight of the blind mind, the only two-stage healing in all the Bible. Clearly some intentionality behind that in terms of what Jesus is doing and the way Mark presents it to us here in the gospel. Just as he, the point being, just as he gradually heals that man of his physical blindness, he is gradually healing the disciples of their spiritual blindness, helping them to see, helping to resolve this question of identity. Who is he? Who is he? He is the Christ. Now, why is this important to have straight in our, in our minds and in our hearts? Because if we don't, without this, without this issue of identity being resolved, the door, a, a door is left open that Jesus means to be closed. And that is the issue of pluralism. There are not many ways to God. There are not. There is but one. We are not given many options from which to choose. There is but one. It is, it is not just be spiritual. It is not designer spirituality, like you know, going up to the cafeteria and I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. No, no, I don't want any of that. Thank you very much. That's not the way it works. You take what you're served. Sit down and eat. That's what we're finding here. To know the gospel, this is the first point, to know the gospel is to know who he is. The Christ. Jesus. Which takes us into the second question, why did he come? Why did he come? Picking up where we left off, verses 31 through 33. He began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this, Plainly, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. 
and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the issue of, or the question of mission. Why did he come? What is this about? It was a necessary death. Now, the way Mark sets this in front of us tells us that this is new information at this point in his ministry being conveyed. Because you look at verse 31, he says he began. He began to teach them. This is a new emphasis that is now coming here at this point in, in his ministry. And there's a force to his words at this point that something must happen. Something was necessary to happen. Something was vital to happen. What is it? What is it? He has to suffer. He has to be rejected. He has to be killed. And after three days, he has to rise again. Why? Why? Because of what his mission was. His mission was not to teach. His mission was not to heal. His mission was not to be a positive example to humanity. His mission was to die. His mission was to die and then to be raised three days later. He is the mysterious suffering servant that Isaiah wrote about centuries before that the people could not see who, how, Messiah, suffering servant, Christ. They must be too complete. No, Jesus is showing that the two are one. The two have to be one. He is the payment for our sin. He is the ransom in his flesh, in his blood, that we might then be free. Now, this is a shocking claim that Jesus is making here. Understanding that the, the expectations of the time of who and what the Messiah was to be and to do hardly squared with this. The idea was that this Messiah, the Christ, was going to come and rout the Romans, run them out, and then rule in their place to set up a, a new kingdom on earth. The fulfillment of everything that his father David had been, and more. So this concept of a king on a cross doesn't work. It's shocking in terms of, of what he's in essence saying about himself and also what he's saying about them. This is why, you put these two things together, this is why Peter is responding so strongly, so viscerally at this point, rebuking the one who he had just said, by the way, is the Christ. Because implicit in this is not just things about Jesus, but things about them. Because if Jesus is coming to die as a suffering servant, it, it, and immediately that has to trip something in their minds. Wait a minute. Our worst problem is not an occupying army. Our worst problem is not the tyranny of the Romans. Our worst problem is the tyranny of sin in our hearts. That's the enemy. And that's the problem. This is the issue of mission. Why he came to live and to die for us. Now why is this important? Why is this so important? Because... Without this, the door is left open, not just for pluralism, but legalism. And what I mean by that is this, is a performance-based life. Without this, without an understanding of why he came and what it is that he has done. You see, if, if we don't understand the depth of our need, we will have no appreciation of how he has met that need. You understand? If we don't have an understanding of the depth of our need, 
we will not then appreciate what it is that he has done to meet it. Which then means we will be left to, because we're not grounding our lives in what he has done and performed for us, we will think it's all about what we have to perform and do for him. We will live performance-based, trying to do more, achieve more, be better, do better. And when we fail, not if, when, we will despair or deny that we did, and I don't know which is worse. And when it comes to relating to one another, we will be judgmental because you're not measuring up like I am. To know the gospel is to know why he came. It is to know why he came. Thirdly, with those two things in mind, how should we respond? With who he is, why he came, how should we respond? Verses 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the matter of call. Jesus' call upon us. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means a shift of allegiance. A change of allegiance. Um, a change, a shift away, a turning from our self-centered lives. See, we, we say in, in, in response to things like this, what Jesus has said, said here, who, who has the right to tell me what to do? Well, God does. God does. He has the right. And he is calling us here away from a self-centered life, away from our self-determining, self-directed, self-dependent de uh, life to a Christ-centered life to repent, to literally turn, to live for Christ, a Christ-centered life where His priorities, His longings trump all else and form the grid through which and the framework out of which we live. But it's not just that. It's not just a shift of allegiance here. You can see that very clearly. It's a bit more sobering than that. It's a summons to die. It's a call to die. To take up the cross. To take up the cross meant to be a martyr. Understand, in the first century context, it meant to be a martyr, to die a horrific, shameful, repulsive kind of death, or at least be willing to endure the rejection and scorn of those around us. That's what it means for us to take up that cross to be willing to forsake all for him. And then Jesus gives, though, a compelling reason for that. Um, if I can just put it this way, in essence, he's saying, what do you have to lose? In view of the weightiness, in view of the value of your soul, what compares to that? What do you really have to lose? He throws a paradox at us here. To have your life, you must give it up. 
Um, to keep your life, you must lose it. And this is the response that's being called forth from, from all of us, to heed this call. Now, why is this important? Why is this vital for us to hear? Because if without this, the door then is left open, not just to pluralism and uh, legalism, but consumerism. Because unless we hear this, this shift of allegiance and the summons to die, we will not understand that the call is to serve and maybe even to suffer. And when the time comes to serve and or suffer, forget it. That's not what I signed on for. When things get hard, not if, when. When things get hard, we will then become angry and bitter at God because we thought we had something else coming. To know the gospel is to have heeded this call the shift and this summons. God works through us to reach people with the gospel. Coming around back to where we started. It means we have to know it ourselves. Um, we have to know it, know it deeply, and in essence, we have to own it. At the same time, however, it has to own us. There's another way beyond just this way of knowing it. You know, three-point outline. Oh, right. Peace, Jesus. There you come. We have to deeply know it. It has to have begun to and be continually seeping into our bones. This, this message. Why? Well, think with me. It makes no sense whatsoever to go forth into this world with a message of grace while we are captivated and motivated by guilt. That doesn't work. <laughs> There's a horrible disconnect in that. We have to know it. It has to be owning us, changing us. To carry forth this message, in essence, is really to be being changed by it. It's more than just conveying information. It's, it's being a living um, billboard, I guess you could say, testimony of the hope of transformation. So where does this then leave us? Encouraged. Encouraged for two reasons. One, because as I said in the beginning, God sovereignly rules in all of this. He is the one who presses this message home. So the pressure's off. We have a role to play, absolutely, but ultimately it's not up to us. That's good news. That's really, really good news. Here's the second reason. That as we carry this message forward, He delights to change us. The longer we walk with Him, we start to smell like Him. We start to look like Him. We start to sound like Him. And other people begin to pick up on that. The more we walk with Him, we become changed. We become... It, it, this is a living message. And it touches all the lives with whom it intersects, even us, even the very ones who are going forth with it. Let's pray together. Lord, we, may we, may we never tire of these things, these issues, these matters of your identity, who you are. Oh, may we never tire of hearing that and, and contemplating that. May we never tire of 
talking about, thinking about, meditating upon your mission, why you've come, what it is that you have done. May we never tire of examining our hearts when it comes to your call on us and uh, the need to deny ourselves and to take up the, the cross. These are astonishing things to consider, and they are vital that we would know them and know them deeply as we've been talking about here. And we pray that you'd help us, all of us here, whether we are followers of yours here this morning, help us to know these things and to grow in them. And for any here who, this morning who are seeking and inquiring and trying to understand, help them, help them to see, give them the eyes with which to see these things. We pray this all in your name. Amen.